for those of you who attended my talk yesterday, I hope that some of you ticked off some checks uh, in my list of things to leave this week with. Uh, I found the CDC talk very engaging and very uh, relevant. So uh, welcome to this. Uh, a couple of... Uh, key points I want to make as I mentioned the fact that I don't have anything to disclose from an industry, industry relationship perspective. Uh, and I always say this in front of all of my talks. Uh, if you see the word physician on any of my slides, it's because I am quoting someone else who, uh, who wrote it. Uh, I love this meeting because of the fact that it puts us all together in all of our disciplines as a single group. And I'm talking to all of you as if we're one big group. So I don't presume that we're all doctors. I actually tend to be partial to nurses, to be honest with you. Um, my wife is a nurse. Um, the other thing I think that's important is, uh, I don't want to come off preachy here. Uh, I have to presume that we all have uh, good level of communication skills, we're all intelligent, so in no way, shape, or form am I under the assumption that I'm going to make you be a better clinician uh, or healthcare provider at what you do. What I am trying to do is point out some key things and some thoughts uh, about what we do in the course of our practice, some of the things that are part of human nature for us and that may influence how chronic pain patients specifically may act, respond, uh, and our interaction with them might be affected. My reason for naming this talk is because I am a parrot head. Uh, I'm a big Jimmy Buffett fan. This is one of my favorite songs of his. And uh, when I looked at this segment of the song, it really made me think about the fact that some of these lyrics really apply to sometimes our relationships uh, between patients with chronic pain and us in terms of opening our eyes, thinking about what we might see, and sort of looking beyond uh, the traditional just baseline history and physical. And I have given the talk at this meeting. I think I gave it last year. This year, I think Dr. Michael Clark gave it earlier today, actually, on chronic pain assessment. And at face value, I think it seems pretty simple. I mean, you basically build a foundation in any kind of medical interaction. The assessment is the foundation of everything that follows. You need to know what's going on. You need to figure it out. You need to work with the patient. You need to then build a house on top of it, which would be the treatment plan. And you need to be a partner with the patient. It seems really simple. Well, one of the things that I've always carried with me uh, was a quote from William Osler, who I think, whose name we all recognize uh, when we think of arthritis. And what he said is, he who studies medicine without books sails on an uncharted sea, but he who studies medicine without patients does not go to sea at all. It's all about the patient at the end of the day. And my training ended in the early 80s. Uh, and so we're talking about 35 years ago. I was taught that if you give the patient enough time, they will tell you what is wrong with them. And William Osler said, listen, listen to your patient. He should be he slash she, but this is what he said. 
is telling you the diagnosis. Importantly, he also said this quote at the bottom of the slide, when a patient with arthritis comes in the front door, I try to go out the back door. <laughs> so he had a sense of humor. Now, communication is an important thing. I think we all are here, and everything that's happening at this meeting is in some way, shape, or form a mean of means of connection for us. And hopefully, it's going to turn into a means of connection between you and patients that you might be involved with taking care of. Uh, this is the pain rating scale that I think of when I think of a patient telling me, please rate your pain on a scale of 0 to 10. And most of the patients, I think, see themselves like this. And I really like the choice. It's way too serious for numbers, pal. I think, though, what's going through patients' mind most of the time is take my pain away. People want their pain gone. And if I had a magic wand with respect to chronic pain, I would say, here's the thing that I want you to communicate with patients who have chronic pain. And that is that very rarely is there going to be the word cure in this story. When we get to prescribing medications, I would definitely also want something to be communicated, and that would be, here's what I want you to do with the unused portion of your pain medication in terms of disposal, because that is not something I hear being communicated often, if ever. I think we, if you've heard me talk before, you've heard me say this before, Jack, you've certainly heard me say it many times, this is my 10th year at pain week, we have all been brought up to save our pain medications. If we have to be honest with, you, with each other. I'm being honest with you in this talk. It's the truth. The majority of us have been brought up to save our pain medications. I had surgery a couple of years ago. The surgeon knows what I do for a living. And in the ambulatory discharge unit, he looked at me and said, do you have any pain medication at home or do you need me to write you a script? And I just looked at him. So I would want those two things to be communicated. Now, in our lives, we spend a significant amount of time communicating with other people. 70 to 80% of our waking hours involve some type of communication. My wife will be the first one to say that I'm guilty of not spending enough time doing the listening part. Listening is a part of communication, and it may be the most important part of communications that we use. Stephen Covey said that most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Now, if we are all facing pressures in healthcare, we have to be honest and admit that as a patient is telling us their story, as they're giving us that history, we're already thinking about what our response is going to be. We're already generating responses and thought processes, and we're using precognitive thinking in this case. We need to self-reflect and take a step back with that regard. The world is giving you answers each day. Learn to listen. And I think I agree with this the most, is one of the most sincere forms of respect is actually listening to what another has to say. And my wife will also tell you, if she were here, that I'm guilty of, I know you're listening to me, but you're paying attention to me. 
It might be two very different things. And this little cartoon shows a doctor offering a lollipop to a patient, and the caption reads, will this lollipop suffice for patient engagement? This is something that we've actually experienced in real life in the operating room, but basically uh, they dropped the patient because not everybody was listening to the count. So our basic premise for the history and physical exam, and certainly mine, this is the book that I was given way back in my training, and everything that I was taught with respect to taking a good history and physical came from this book, De Gowan and De Gowan. This was my Bible. And you know what? It was a great book. It was a great template. It continues to be published in multiple editions. But one of the things that it didn't do that I teach my medical students to do now through standardized patient simulations is to talk, to listen, and a little bit later we'll get to empathize with patients. None of that was covered in this book. This was a very cookbooky kind of way to take a good history and physical. Now, I included this picture of Australia because these researchers are from Australia just for the purpose of showing that we are really all in the same boat, regardless of what country we're in. The general patient experience uh, from the patient's perspective is the healthcare provider assesses the patient, a diagnosis is made, some kind of treatment plan is formulated, and interventions are considered that is or are worthwhile, and then there's some type of follow-up based on efficacy and with respect to pain. Unfortunately, uh, it's usually defined by a score of 0 to 10, not by a score of 0 to 10 and functional capacity. And I would make the argument, and maybe in the question and answer session, we could talk about the question of are pain rating scales and function rating scales always connected, or can they sometimes separate and go in different directions? These authors, and they published this in 2009 in the Journal of Pain, also talked about some potential problems with using this framework, which is the one we've all been taught to use. I mean, assess, formulate treatment plan, implement treatment plan, inform consent, so on and so forth, is that with respect to chronic pain specifically, there may not be a specific diagnosis. So it could get really tough. And historically, when patients are given diagnoses, ultimately they're unhelpful or purely descriptive. And, you know, I wrote this down, uh, and, I, and I read it actually today as I was looking over the slides. What is chronic pain syndrome? Like, what is that? Where is that pain? What, what does it mean? Isn't every type of chronic pain a chronic pain syndrome? Could you ever write that in a chart as a diagnosis? And degenerative disc disease is absolutely a, a diagnosis, but what is it referring to with respect to what patients are experiencing? And rarely in this situation, when we use that paradigm of assess, diagnose, treat, we don't necessarily take the patient on the voyage of figuring out how the treatment for their chronic pain condition is going to work. Very different in an acute situation. So what are common barriers between communication between healthcare providers and patients. Well, one critical barrier is the fact that we just don't have the time. 
right? I mean, most people you will talk to will tell you, I just don't have the time. We'll get, get into that a little bit more. But something interesting to consider is if, if I were to pose the question to you by a show of hands, how many of you feel that healthcare providers in healthcare today, 2016, communicate better with each other than they did 20 years ago? How many of you think that? How many of you think it was better 20 years ago? It's pretty ironic, isn't it? That more of you feel that it was better then than it is now? It's the computer. It's the computer. The computer that was supposed to be the ATM card of healthcare, as far as I was concerned, ended up becoming a barrier to communication. And we'll talk about it being a barrier in the examination room, which is something I talked about yesterday as well. One of the biggest barriers to effective communication that I consider, and I think most people in any profession consider this, is the use of jargon. I take extreme pains to make sure that when I'm speaking to a group like yourselves, that I know what my audience composure is going to be, and that I make it meaningful in some way, shape, or form to hopefully all of you. Words like spondylolisthesis don't mean anything to patients. Radiculopathy, things that we don't realize that patients just don't understand. If on a good day, let's hear from you, what do you think the average retention rate for a chronic pain patient after a clinical visit is, percentage-wise? 30, 10, 15, okay, not that high. I, I actually fall in the 10% camp. I think that with, if you're lucky, patients remember about 10% of what gets discussed in the course of a visit, especially if they're suffering from bad chronic pain. So I'll give you a story. My parents moved to Florida back in the early 80s. My father fell and broke his hip. I was in New York. I couldn't get free, but they took him to the operating room. They did an open reduction internal fixation of his hip. And I'm on the phone with my mother. The doctor, the orthopedic surgeon, comes into the room. She says, hold on. The orthopedic surgeon's here. And all of this talking. A couple of minutes later, my mother gets back on the phone. I said, what did the orthopedist have to say? She said, nothing. Jargon is definitely not a good start to effective communication when it comes to talking to patients. And simple terms, uh, especially when they're anxious, possibly medicated, and in pain. And I could tell you I have a lot of experience writing materials for chronic pain patients. Uh, a lot of research I did funded by NIH was actually directed towards chronic pain patients. And my watermark for writing was fifth grade reading level. Fifth grade. Maybe we need to keep that in mind. Because when it comes to literacy, it's something that we need to talk about. We need to understand that if they have a literacy level, that maybe when we're talking to them about a chronic pain condition that could be complicated, we need to take literacy into account. And a word that I don't often hear described is something called numeracy. What's their ability to understand numbers? And we do this with our medical students. And you know what? A lot of our medical students get these things wrong. 
If we say to a patient, you have between a 3 and 20% chance of becoming addicted to an opioid, do we really assume that they're digesting that and they know what that really means? Or if we tell them that the success rate of this treatment is 38% and the success rate of that treatment is 47%, but the standard deviation is 10%, so we're good to go? I don't even know what I just said. <laughs> it becomes blah, blah, blah. And we have to try and stop that. Emotional barriers are an important one, and they could possibly even be taboos to some people. Some people find it very difficult to express their emotions. Some people express their emotions in different ways. I had a patient, true story, I use this for my medical students in my ethics class, and it's, I tried to paint some images for them of my less than shining moments. And I always tell them about a patient I was about to put to sleep. She was going to have a hysterectomy. And she must have said to me at least 10 times, if anything bad happens to me, I'm going to sue your ass. <laughs> so I bent down next to her ear. And I said to her, if I were you, I would wait to piss me off until I wake you up. She, I shouldn't have let her flip me, but she did. <laughs> you might not be aware of, of the person's emotional state. Right? They may be being very stoic, but they might be worried about things that, that we're not really taking into consideration. And from their perspective, this is from the patient perspective, some things might be taboo. And this is a little bit of a pet peeve for me. And... It is that, as far as I'm concerned, between healthcare provider and patient, there is no such thing as a difficult discussion. There's no topic that can't be discussed. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine an obstetrician gynecologist not asking a woman if she's had prior terminations of pregnancy. I can't imagine considering a patient to be a candidate for an opioid and not having a frank discussion about licit and illicit use of substances. It's got to happen. It's not difficult. It's part of the deal. If you're considering anticoagulant therapy for, pa therapy for patients and they tell you they play ice hockey, it's not a difficult discussion. I bring that up because I have a 49-year-old friend who recently had a deep vein thrombosis and he was put on Eliquis and he continues to play ice hockey. So I said to him, I sent you to my vascular surgeon. Didn't he tell you that you can't play ice hockey if you're on a blood thinner? And he said to me, no doctor has told me I can't do that. And I looked at him and I said, you can't do that. <laughs> we, we need to try and figure out what's going through patients' minds. Just, just, are we okay with me roaming the room like a moving target as opposed to just standing up there? I hate standing up there. Okay, thank you. Also from the patient perspective, as I mentioned, anxiety is really the product of uncertainty and a feeling of powerlessness. I don't think any of us would argue that patients with chronic pain don't have an idea of what the future holds. We talked about the fact that cure is not likely a part of the, the future puzzle, and they definitely feel powerless. But yet, we're supposed to be entering into some kind of scenario where there's shared decision-making with them. 
very difficult to share decision-making with somebody who feels powerful. And very often, this leads to anxiety. Other patient challenges or lack of attention span. <laughs> the blah, blah, blah. Maybe the patient just doesn't have a long attention span. Maybe they're not interested in what you're saying to them. Maybe they really came so they could walk out with the badge of honor, which is a, a prescription, which in New York State is now electronic, so you don't even get to have that. Maybe, maybe I should take my used prescriptions and just put an X on it and say, here, you could feel better now that you got this. Uh, they may have a decreased ability to focus for a lot of reasons. I don't think any one of us would argue that patients with chronic pain often have diminished appetite and they have difficulty sleeping. Well, you know what? If you have diminished appetite and you're not eating a lot and you're not sleeping a lot, your attention span might be decreased. Plus, they may have pain, distractions that we don't even know about. Maybe being able to pay their rent or get back to work. Uh, the relevance of what you're talking about with, with them as it pertains to their pain and the fact that they're really worried about being disabled. I always call fear of the unknown one of the biggest problems that we treat patients with chronic pain. It's a very big fear. I don't like not knowing what's going to happen. I like knowing what's going to happen. Other patient barriers or differences in how people are perceive things, especially with respect to nonverbal communication. I've done a lot of work in terms of seeing how patients respond to certain opioid risk assessments when they're administered by clinicians versus computers or tablets or some electronic form. And you know what? They're more truthful with electronic formats because there's no eyebrows that can go up and down in an electronic format. There's no hands on the hips. There's no hitting the forehead. There's no nonverbal cues. There's no gestures. There's no posturing that takes place. All of these things might influence the way patients interact with us, and I think we need to take, take those things into consideration. We also need to take into consideration what their preconceptions are. I don't think I've ever met a patient, certainly in the last 20 years, who didn't come in and sort of expect what the treatment plan was going to be. Right? I know because my next door neighbor's cousin, three times removed, had this same degenerative disc disease and here's what happened to them. This is what I expect to happen to me. And goals and expectations, as far as I'm concerned, is probably the most important ingredient of the pain assessment that I can think of. You can get the test, you can get the diagnosis, but I always talk about the fact that if I think I'm driving to Costco and my wife is sitting in the passenger seat and she thinks we're going to a movie, when we get to Costco, she's going to say, I thought we were going to a movie. And if a patient expects that their pain is going to be taken away, but you in your mind know at best you're going to ameliorate their pain, everybody needs to know what the goals and the expectations are of the treatment. And with respect to goals, you need to know not necessarily so much about what the pain rating is on a scale of 0 to 10. You need to know what it is the patient wants to do. Cultural. I was given a grant from the NIH to actually explore cultural differences in Hispanic patients with chronic pain. And you know what? There's a lot of differences beyond just language. 
Language is obviously one of them, but this is a true story. I once gave an epidural to a patient uh, in Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx who only spoke Spanish. And about 10 hours after the cesarean section she had uh, to deliver the baby, the nurse called me. I was home and said she can't move her right leg. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm thinking she's got an epidural hematoma. And I'm thinking mobilize the neurosurgical team and so on and so forth. Jumped in my car, drove to the hospital. I speak Spanish. Went in to see the patient. I said, can you move your leg in Spanish? She shook her head no. So I went and I moved her leg. And I said, straighten out your leg. She straightened out her leg and put it down fine. So I said, I thought you said you can't move your leg. And she said, well, it hurts. <laughs> Language can be a barrier, but very often other cultural differences can be different barriers. And what we found was that in Hispanic males and Hispanic females, they reacted to pain differently and they reported the pain differently because of this need for stoicism and machismo and in some cases the person's the martyr and in other cases they, don't, they just don't want to be touched. They're very modest. And they don't want to be examined to the detail that you need to examine them. So there could be a lot of cultural differences and even others, all the way up to spirituality and faith, that could be playing a part. And certainly the willingness to divulge certain information, uh, such as sexual dysfunction and diminished social interaction, could be difficult for any of us to discuss with patients. But remember what I said. Honesty, no difficult discussions. Nothing should be difficult. If you think it's difficult, it could be just like transference of a patient's fear to a child's fear. You think it's difficult, you talk to the patient about it, they pick up the fact that you think it's difficult, and then they think it's a difficult conversation. It's got to be matter-of-fact and part of the problem. And I think not just from a patient perspective, but from everybody's perspective, we all do have certain prejudices, and patients are not free of that, but neither are we in many cases. And we do do some form of stereotyping. You know, the one everybody always refers to is the patient who comes in with a chronic pain problem with tattoos from top to bottom and little grandma who comes in and who's the one diverting the medication? It's grandma. We judge people. And we need to at least reflect and keep in mind that we think about that and con consider the fact that it may be determining how we communicate and interact with them. And, you know, this gets back to the listening thing. People often hear what they expect to hear rather than what is actually stated and may jump to incorrect conclusions. Other challenges and barriers to effective communication, as I mentioned before, money is a part of it because with effective communication, time has to be part of the story, right? And resources need to be part of the story. The environment needs to be part of the story. And now we'll take a moment to talk about technology. <clears throat> My internist has tried to deal with the implementation of electronic medical records in a variety of ways. First was a tablet, which you could never really get down pat, so it didn't work. So he would put down the tablet in a frustrated way, and I felt like, oh, now he's getting frustrated? I'm here for my annual physical, and he's getting frustrated? Now we go to the next year, and there's a young person in the room with us who is a scribe. 
And their job was to walk around with a laptop, like a stenographer, and type everything in. Now, I went for my checkup just this past year, and there was no tablet and no scribe. He said that the tablet was a frustrating experience, and what he found was that the presence of the scribe actually made certain discussions difficult. Because people may not want to talk about difficult discussions in front of a stranger. If my relationship is with you, I want to talk with you about it. Who's this other stenographer here? I, I don't need them to know. So his solution was to mentally record these things and then do his progress notes after hours. That's not a great solution, but it's a challenge. And you know what it really made me think of is how is he going to remember everything to write in the record? So you know what he was doing? He was writing things down. It's like back to the future. <laughs> From a patient perspective, there is no question that the biggest vitamin in the chronic pain story is vitamin M, I call it, motivation. You need to be able to figure out through communicating with the patient if they're motivated. Because if they're not motivated, their ability to change or their resistance to change is going to be dramatically enhanced and the likelihood of adherence to a treatment plan is going to go way down. And depression is something that could also come into this story. All of these things have to be taken into consideration. That book I showed you, De Gallon and De Gallon, none of this was in there. It was just all about take the vital signs, H-E-N-T, go through the human body, go through this, order the appropriate tests. None of these things were taken into consideration. And on our side, multitasking, definitely something that hurts us rather than helps us. Uh, I don't think that whether a patient is attractive or unattractive uh, should ever affect how much attention we pay to them. But it's very possible that you may be having a mental argument with the patient in your head uh, while you're talking to them. And that could lead to some kind of nonverbal cue that could come across to the patient and you don't even know it. So here's the example. You say to someone with degenerative arthritis of both knees, you got to lose 50 pounds. And you're thinking in your head already, I know he's never going to lose 50 pounds. And you see it on, they see it on your face and then they know and then everybody knows and it doesn't get discussed and it doesn't lead to productive communication. We could also be bored, tired, unfocused, or even not feeling well. Patients don't want to catch us on days where we're not 100%. All of these things could affect that communication interaction. And we are probably, I would definitely consider myself to fall in this category, that we're much more interested in figuring out what's going on than in empathizing with the patient. And I have to tell you, we're probably much better at giving sympathy to patients. And in many cases, maybe a lot of us think that empathy and sympathy are the same thing, but they're not. And that little cartoon shows where empathy is on the left there in blue saying, I feel your pain, versus sympathy saying, I'm sorry, you're in pain. And probably the majority of what we think is, I'm sorry, you're in pain. And previous experiences we've had with patients, whether we're talking about gender, race, ethnicity, other situations, uh, and other biases, all come into play in how we communicate and interact with patients, for sure.
So, is it possible that ineffective communication could actually transfer over into the likelihood of a patient being adherent to a treatment plan? We communicate with a patient, we formulate a treatment plan. What's the likelihood of the adherence to the treatment plan being impacted by our ability to communicate? Well, in some instances, effective treatments are not prescribed due to inadequate healthcare provider knowledge, assessment, or practice. To me, that's a given. And what that really means is that we tend to rely on the treatments that we're comfortable with, the ones that we were taught and the ones that we're comfortable using. And I have been a good disruptor in that area by bringing new treatments to new places and being sort of the, the leading charge, but it could be an uncomfortable place to be. The majority of us rely on the things that we're comfortable with. And even when practitioners prescribe or recommend evidence-based treatment, there's evidence that many patients are not adherent to the recommended treatment. That's because we're all human. 82% of people who take medications in the United States at one point or another are not adherent to the way they should be taken. General practitioners and other healthcare professionals are only moderately adherent themselves to things like guidelines. And in a cross-sectional survey, 442 general practitioners and 580 physical therapists who had recently treated a patient with back pain completed something called the Pain and Attitudes Belief Scale and were exposed to a vignette of a patient with nonspecific lower back pain. And the majority of healthcare providers reported giving advice that was broadly in line with guideline recommendations and 28% reported that they would recommend that the patient stay home from work with respect to their back pain-related problems. And they were much likely to do so if they endorsed a biomedical rather than a biopsychosocial approach to managing pain. And this is part of another lecture that I give, but I included it uh, for the purpose of this talk because I actually think it's part of the problem. I think in most cases, when we interact and we communicate with patients, we often take a biomedical approach as opposed to a biopsychosocial approach. And this little cap caption reads, the doctor will see you now. I can't promise that he'll talk to you, but he'll see you. <laughs> and in, in my ethics class, I talk about with my students the idea that in the old days of medicine, medicine was paternally delivered. People went to the doctor, people went to the clinic with the intention of being told what to do, and then I got to go home and I got to do what I was told to do, as opposed to a patient-centered approach. Well, in this chart on the left, we have the biomedical model that I said most people often use to treat chronic pain with the biopsychosocial model on the other side. And you know what? The biomedical model is really good for acute pain. It's generally a reductionistic kind of approach. You're in pain, you sprained your ankle this weekend, we're gonna diminish it, we're gonna focus on the physical disease mechanisms, and we're gonna use medical management. As opposed to the idea that in a biopsychosocial model, which is much more appropriate for chronic pain, there could be other systems involved. It's not just the swelling and the redness of the ankle. There's other central mechanisms involved. There's illness behavior happening. There's cognitive and emotional responses that need to be taken. And it's much more, instead of a reductionistic, a multi-dimensional multi systems approach. And self-management strategies 
are often important in the management of chronic pain. How are patients going to know about the role of self-management strategies if we don't communicate it to them? So my wife and I probably fall into this category a lot. I'm thinking chihuahua. She sees an image of a duck. And we go back and forth. We look at a number. I see a 6. She sees a 9. And I made this slide before that CDC talk, so I get credit for it. And I always say to her, I'm only responsible for what I say, not what you think I said. So here's a patient saying, I have a headache, work's been demanding, I got a parking ticket, and the doctor says, Prozac, Prozac, Prozac. <clears throat> so there's a lot of opportunities for common breakdowns in communication, and it costs our healthcare system almost $1.7 billion every single year, and lives are lost as well. And I think it was Lynn Webster. Uh, who recently wrote a blog post about an inadvertent consequence of the CDC guidelines, which aren't part of this talk. But he talked about whether suicide was possibly a consequence of the CDC guidelines. If the, the whole idea of diminishing the number of prescriptions was going to back people up against the wall and make them feel like they had nowhere to go. Remember that anxiety is the product of uncertainty and fear. So what about us? Well, very often, we may actually be diminished by what our patients do and how they behave because we may not feel like we're taking them towards a successful treatment outcome. Pain is one of the only clinical conditions, and this is something I usually fit into a talk every year. Pain is one of the few medical conditions where the patient gets to have a say in what a failed treat treatment outcome is. Not with hypertension, not with diabetes, not with cancer. There's no, subject, there's no objective markers. It's a subjective thing. Patients get to have a say. And if you are failing patients, who do you blame? This little graphic shows uh, the four elements of empathy. It's see their world, appreciate them as human beings, understand feelings, and communicate understanding. I think if we could do those four things in the in the context of communicating with patients, we could do them a big service. I mean, there's no question treatment of, patient, of chronic pain is often very complicated. Uh, this, this little cartoon reads, here, do you want to enjoy some music while you're not listening to what I'm saying? <clears throat> a meta-analysis uh, was done and revealed a 19% higher risk of non-adherence to treatment among patients whose clinicians communicated poorly. And the odds of patient adherence were 1.62 times higher if the healthcare provider had received some form of communication training. Let's consider this communication training. The symptom is poor communication. Shared goal, pain amelioration, not taking away the pain. Progress is often defined by the efficacy of acute treatment or lack of it. Is chronic pain really acute treatment failure? I think patients think it is. We need to let them know that it's a very different thing. And in whose eyes? Patients usually blame the treatment, right? The Advil didn't work. The X didn't work. The Y didn't work. You know who we blame? We blame the patient. I've written it. Patient failed the trial on blankety blank, blank, blank. Not the medication failed, the patient failed. And this could lead to frustration, which could lead in further 
breakdowns in communication, further stigmatization, further uh, likelihood of decreased adherence, and then sort of that carousel, I call it. And this is not the carousel that I referred to in yesterday's talk. This is the carousel where patient goes from healthcare provider A to healthcare provider B to C, D, E, F, G, and they've seen 12 people already for their chronic pain condition. Terminology definitely matters, and this is an important one. A survey was done asking patients to describe what a narcotic or opioid was. That's it. Do you know what a narcotic or opioid is? And give examples if you do, and explain why someone would take an opioid and what long-term consequences of use. Most patients were unfamiliar with the term opioid. Is that surprising to you? In my hospital, we use the word narcotic. Unfortunately, in certain areas of our environment, the word narcotic makes people think about an episode of law and order. We classify them as a narcotic. A substantial percentage of patients identified narcotic as an illegal drug because they're watching that on TV and perceived long-term use of these medications negatively. So if you're going to talk, the, use the word opioid with patients, that's jargon. So what do we do? Well, we get patients engaged in shared decision-making. We try to collaborate with them. Obviously, all of this is done through communication and honest communication. We use a non-judgmental approach to the possible limit of what we can do, and we ask about adherence. We're talking about adherence to the treatment plan because you know what? Motivation plays a role, as we talked about, and if they're not being adherent to the treatment plan, then it needs to be modified. It's okay. It's not a difficult discussion. It's an honest discussion. I call it centering the patient. We need to center the patient. We need to center ourselves and make sure we're on the same page with respect to goals of treatment, efficacy of treatment, and future planning. Listening definitely doesn't hurt. And it took me a long time to work to recreate this slide, but I think it does a good job of showing sort of what lies on the clinician side with respect to their personal beliefs about pain, their professional knowledge of available treatments, and if we just want to talk for a minute about clinicians' personal beliefs, I have done a lot of work in the area of opioid risk assessment, and I have many clinicians who have said to me, I just assume that everybody who comes through the door is going to become addicted. Or I believe that everybody who comes through the door is going to misuse the medication or abuse the medication. That's our personal belief. We're imposing on them, and it's interfering with our ability to communicate. From the patient perspective, they have personal beliefs about pain. They have medication-related effects. They may have other medications that they're taking. They have emotion, emotion and they have some emo motivational level that they're bringing with them as part of the baggage. And they have a history. They existed before they showed up in your clinic setting. And their prior experiences with healthcare providers could definitely affect the way they interact with you. So it's all about fostering relationships, gathering information, providing information, facilitating the decision-making through communication, and then hopefully promoting healthy behaviors and us considering emotion 
to be something that we include in our assessment process and then responding to it. And these two frogs are just saying to each other, can we just talk without you dissecting every word I say? We definitely need to reassess the four A's of pain medicine, a la Steve Pasek, who will be seeing tonight, analgesia, activity, adverse effects, aberrant behaviors, but we also are just scratching the surface with these things, and in no way, shape, or form do they take a human approach to the person who's suffering from chronic pain. I did pain week at sea back in June, and I took this picture, so I threw it in on the slide. It's an interesting way to give pain education. This is a very complicated diagram, but I think it's important, and you'll have it in the slides, and I think it's worth taking a look at. There's this constant shift from top to bottom between chronic pain and suffering, and from left to right is a battle between physical and, and mental balance. And I guess what we're trying to do is keep the patient, as I said, as centered as we possibly can to minimize suffering, to mitigate the chronic pain to the degree we can, to take in, into account both physical and mental or biopsychosocial characteristics. As I end, I just want to show you that the literature is full of articles written about the role of communication in chronic pain, and in many cases, not verbal. There's, there's an article called The Smile of Pain. Pain communication through body posture, development and validation of a stimulus set. If I see the patient walk into an examination room, I'm already paying attention to how they're walking, what their posture is. I always laugh, and I don't mean this negatively towards anybody, when I see an advertisement for an opioid and there's a picture of a person trying to tie their shoe, because I wouldn't expect the goal of my treatment is to enable you to tie your shoe. I think, when I think of a pain patient, I don't think of a person bending down to tie their shoe. I think of a patient who's having trouble getting up and going to work every day or doing the things that they need to do in the course of a normal day. Couple perceptions of fibromyalgia symptoms, the role of communication between people and their significant others. This is important. Gender differences in nonverbal communication with pain. We've heard a lot about that, and I think we'll, there'll be a talk on this subject actually next year. The relationship between catastrophizing and communication of pain experience, catastrophizing is a big part of it. People may think, because of their hopelessness, that, you know, the future is miserable. Doctors and patients in pain, conflict and collaboration in opioid prescription in primary care. I don't see how we could get more focused than that. And this is way back from 1980, which is why I included it. It's the family's viewpoint of chronic pain. We've been talking about this for a long time. So in conclusion, assessment is definitely the foundation of everything that follows in healthcare, and it's definitely the foundation of everything that follows in chronic pain treatment. But communication is the foundation of assessment. It's the foundation of that foundation. And listening complements communication. And context, emotion, individual differences, all of the things I've discussed are likely to influence the way we communicate with patients, and we should be aware of them and reflect about them. Thank you very much. I'll stay here for questions if you have them.